Well, today's the last part of the sermon series that we have been in for quite a while now called The Sex God. For those of you who have young children and maybe you're visiting and you didn't know that this is what we were going to be talking about, uh, this sermon will be R-rated compared to most sermons that I think you would hear in church. So feel free to get up, take your children out, take them to the city kids ministry at this point if you would like to do so. You know, we've covered a lot of ground in this series. And as we come to the close of this series, I want to I really want to say thank you for the latitude that you've given me in this series to say some things that have been very uncomfortable. I know that I have tread on some of your uh, sensibilities throughout this series, but you've been so generous to me, and you've been so, so gracious even when you wondered whether something that I said was really necessary to say. And as I said earlier in this series, I think that says a great deal about the spiritual and the emotional maturity of this church. You know, as I wrap up this series today, I recognize there's so much more that we could have talked about in this series that I haven't talked about. For instance, we could talk about the hedonistic orgy that college culture has become, which has led to debate and controversy about what constitutes consent. We could have talked about those things. We could have talked about date rape. We could have talked about contraception or sexual dysfunction in marriage. All of those are extremely important topics, but unfortunately, I'm just not going to have the time to get into all of those things. I'll save those things for some time in the future. Today, I want to close out this series with some final thoughts about how Christians need to think about sexuality in the days ahead. And I want, you to take, uh, want, to, want to take you today to a passage in the New Testament, a letter in the New Testament called 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. And I know that if you're, if you're new here, you might not have a Bible, and that's okay. We'll put the verses up on the screen. But for the regulars here, they know that they're supposed to have a Bible, digital, electronic, you know, however you say that, or old, co- old school copy, whatever you want. But turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. And while you're turning there, let me give you just a little background on the book of 1 Peter. Peter was, as many of you know, a disciple of Jesus. He was a fisherman by trade. Peter tended to be impulsive. He was also the first of Jesus' disciples to recognize that Jesus was Israel's long-awaited Messiah. Now, the reason that this letter is called 1 Peter is because Peter actually wrote two letters that are included in the New Testament. In this particular letter, he's writing to first century followers of Christ who were experiencing persecution. In other words, he's writing to men and women like you and me who stand for Jesus Christ, made them aliens and strangers in the midst of a pagan society. And you're going to see this in the passage that we're going to read today. Again, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Start there. Dear friends... Do not be surprised at the painful trial that you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. 
Now, if you will allow, uh, if you'll allow me this morning, I'm only going to draw out what I think is the most obvious point in this passage. And then I want to spend some time explaining why I think this passage is the best way to conclude this Sex God series. And so here's the main and I think the most obvious point of this passage. Be prepared for persecution. Be prepared for persecution. Don't go looking for it. Don't go trying to find a way to be a martyr. But when it comes your way, be prepared for it. Don't be surprised by it as if something strange is happening to you. Now that's what this word trial is referring to. It's referring to persecution. This isn't a trial as in, let's say, that you have been sick for a while or that you lost your job because of corporate downsizing. There are other words in the New Testament that speak to that kind of suffering. But this is persecution for your belief in Christ. In fact, the word that Peter uses here is the Greek word pyros. And you might recognize that word. It means fire. We use it in, word, in a word like pyromaniac. The people to whom Peter is writing are experiencing enormous suffering for their belief in Christ. In fact, he mentions, you probably noticed it, he mentions suffering four times in this passage. And there are even hints throughout this letter that Peter may have chosen that word, pyros, intentionally. Now, why would he do that? Well, understand that Peter is in Rome as he writes this letter where the madman, Nero, the Roman emperor, has, has unleashed horrific persecution on the church. And by the church, I mean followers of Christ. For instance, just to explain how horrific the persecution was, Nero would cover Christians with pitch and burn them as human torches to light his garden parties. Thus, perhaps, Peter's use of the word pyros. If he didn't burn them, he would feed them to the lions in the arena as public sport. And what's happening here is that Peter likely anticipated that this persecution would reach his readers out in the surrounding regions eventually. And so he says to them, be prepared for persecution. If it happens, don't think it's strange. This is going to happen. Be prepared for persecution. And here's a question that I think that we should ask ourselves. Would it be worth it to me to suffer for Christ? Peter thinks so. He says, rejoice if that happens. You're blessed, he says. But let me ask you. What if all you had to do to avoid torture like these people are experiencing? What if all you had to do was say, I don't believe in Christ, and then you would be set free? Would you take the out? Or would you take the torture? Because I got to tell you, every time I read a passage like this, I question that about myself. And it makes me recognize that you and I, when we come here to church on a day, on a day like this, it makes me recognize that we're standing on the shoulders of these people and many others like them who have shed their blood to keep the revolution of Jesus Christ moving forward. Many of whose names we don't even know. But there's this magnificent passage in the book of Revelation. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you in just a moment. But 
This passage reminds us that not one drop of blood that has been spilled for the sake of Christ has gone unnoticed by God. John writes about these people in the book of Revelation. And he says, when he opened the fifth seal, the, heel that he's, the he that he's ter- talking about, excuse me, uh, was uh, the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. Now, you see what John is saying, that there have been people killed for their faith in Christ. And he's saying there will be more that will be killed for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't let this be a surprise to you. It's exactly what Peter's saying. Don't, don't act, don't, don't, don't treat this as if something is happening that, that you didn't know might happen. This is part of what it means to follow Christ. And then, of course, just a few chapters later, near the end of book, the book of Revelation... The martyr's blood is avenged. And you know, sometimes it seems odd to me that you and I take our faith in Christ and our collective worship of Christ so casually when these people gave their lives and perhaps their loved ones' lives for their belief in Christ. And I know, you know, I know that, that you think to yourself, thank goodness that we live in America. That could never happen in America to us. We have the freedom to worship. It's part of our constitution We don't have to fear the government coming in and arresting us and torturing us for our faith in Christ. And yet, the timeless word of God here says to every generation throughout history and every place in the world, be prepared for persecution. How prepared are you? Have you given that any thought? I want you to imagine something with me for a moment. Let's say Nero's henchmen come to your home. Say they grab your children or your grandchildren and they put them on their knees facing you. They're crying. Of course they're crying. They're scared. They're looking to you for comfort. And one of Nero's henchmen says to you, deny Christ or we will kill every member of your family one by one. Would faith in Christ mean that much to you that you would let them die and please don't think that that kind of persecution has never happened in human history because it has read your history would faith in Christ mean that much to you because you see this is the kind of devotion that we're called to and oh my goodness, you say, that's, that's so extreme. I mean, look, it's okay to be a Christian and all, go to church, whatever, but that would be ex- extreme. Yeah, it, it is extreme. And that's what I'm trying to remind us every single week here, that that's the extent of the devotion to which Christ has called us. That's how important Christ is. He's worthy of every part of your life, every aspect of your life, even your life itself and even the life's the lives of your family members. And so Peter says, 
Be prepared for persecution. Okay, now some of you are thinking to yourselves, what in the world does this have to do with the Sex God series? Has Jeff lost his mind? Well, in the first part of this series, for those of you who were here for the first part of the series, we looked at the fact that God created sex. We looked at his design for sex as an expression of the mutual oneness of a man and a woman in marriage. We said that that God is the sex God because he created it. He commands married couples to have it. and 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 we also saw that he puts limitations on it. But then about halfway through this series, we turned a corner and we began to talk about what happens when sex itself becomes a God in a culture. So like it's the sex God with a little g. It's an idol. It's become a God. And we saw what Jesus had to say about about that and about lust and about the, dest- the destruction that it can bring into a culture. We saw what the Bible has to say about homosexuality. And we've seen what the Bible has to say about gender issues and about how both are attempts to liberate humanity from the structures of creation that God has set in place. And here is where this passage from 1 Peter chapter 4 intersects with our series. And why it's such an appropriate place to end this series. I want you to think for a moment about the rapid pace of change of America's attitudes toward same-sex marriage. In 1996, the Gallup organization conducted its first survey on same-sex marriage in America. 68% of the people in America opposed same-sex marriage. In 2015, just before the United United States Supreme Court ruled that same-sex marriage is constitutional, 60% of Americans now support same-sex marriage. 68% opposed it in 1996, and today over 60% support same-sex marriage. And understand that this isn't going backwards. Research shows that millennials, both secular and religious, favor gay rights by enormous majorities. And so as older generations die and make way for younger generations, the percentage of Americans who support same-sex marriage will only increase. And no sooner than the Supreme Court ruled in favor of same-sex marriage, activists began pushing for transgender rights and for unisex bathrooms in schools. Here's what I want you to understand. Our culture has turned powerfully and quickly against Christians who believe the Bible to be literally true and relevant for all times and all places. In the wake of the Supreme Court's decision on same-sex marriage, Christians' belief about marriage being limited to a man and a woman are now considered to be prejudiced, hostile, and hateful. The culture war that began with the sexual revolution of the 1960s has for all intents and purposes ended. And Christianity in America has lost. Someday in the future, historians will wonder how the sexual desires of only 3 to 4% of the population became the basis for an entire worldview being dislodged and overturned so quickly. What's the answer to that? How did that happen so quickly? 
How did just 3 to 4% of the population's sexual desires change a worldview, change a view about marriage that had been true, considered true for so long? How did that happen? And I know some of you might point to the media. You might point to Hollywood as the reason. Of course, I would agree with you on some of those things. But let's be straight with one another about the reason behind the reason. There are spiritual forces behind the sexual revolution. And I want you to listen to me now. The spiritual forces behind the sexual revolution are continuing to press forward with a harsh, relentless occupation that is aided by Christians who just don't understand what is happening. This is spiritual, you see. And the enemy behind this will not stop. Why? Because this isn't just about sex. This is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, in 1996, when 68% of the population opposed gay marriage, I wonder how long you would have thought it would take before gay marriage would be legal in America. I mean, 68% of the population disagrees. How long would you have thought that it would take? Well, it actually took less than 20 years. Right now... Churches have the right to say that we won't hire actively gay men or women and that we won't do same-sex marriages. But how long until that changes? How long until churches who resist these things lose their 501c3 tax status? I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but what it means is that when you give, you wouldn't uh, get a tax deduction which would inevitably lead to fewer and fewer financial resources for churches to work with. How long until pastors who refuse to do same-sex marriages will be subject to civil and even criminal liability? How long until your association with Christianity and a church like City Church, how long until that becomes a reason to ostracize you, to keep you from getting an education, or to keep you from getting a job? Peter would say to us, I think, be prepared for persecution over the Bible's view of sexuality. Be prepared for that. And what are you going to do when persecution comes to the church? Or when persecution comes to your door? Because here's the thing, I said this, I said this last week. Once you begin to pick and choose what parts of the Bible are true and what parts aren't on the basis of what is convenient, once you begin to say, well, sexuality in the Bible, it just seems so old-fashioned, hostile, and bigoted. Once you do that, you logically have to begin to pick out other objectionable aspects of the Bible as well. Like, for instance, the gospel that says salvation comes only through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's offensive, And that, you see, that's what the enemy is after. To shut down the gospel. To get you to a place that you begin to pick and choose what parts of the Bible you will accept are true and relevant on the basis of what is offensive to other people and what is convenient. As we close this series, I want to give you 
five things that the church must do, or in some cases not do, if we're going to keep the gospel alive in this country. And again, I said this a few weeks ago, I am primarily speaking to people here this morning in the generations represented by people younger than, let's say, 40, the future leaders of the church. Now, of course, I'm speaking to everybody, but primarily I want to speak to those of you who are younger, who are going to be the future leaders of the church in America. Here's the first thing, and this is what not to do. Do not give in to the temptation to compromise sexual orthodoxy. Don't give in to that temptation. Those of you who are future leaders of the church, don't give in to that. And it's the first thing that comes to people's minds. We all want to be cool like everyone else. We don't want to seem regressive. We want to be open and accepting. I certainly want that. But you ask yourself, it's the natural question. Is it really that big of a deal if we compromise on this, if we could keep our church, if we could just keep the gospel alive in this country, would it be so bad if we compromise on that? Well, I want you to listen to this. 20 years ago, a U.S. bishop in the Episcopal Church, his name was John Sponge, he wrote, a, he wrote and published a book that was called Why Christianity Must Change or Die. And in the book, Sponge argued that he said congregations will grow if they will abandon their literal interpretation of the Bible and transform along with the changing times, right? And Sponge's thesis was accepted by most mainline denominations. It was also accepted by academics. In fact, Karen King of Harvard Divinity School said in a review of Sponge's book back then, it said that it should be required reading for everyone concerned with facing head-on the intellectual and spiritual challenges of late 20th century religious life. It was widely accepted, this premise, that if you'll, just, if you'll abandon literal interpretation of the Bible, your church will grow if you'll, just, if you'll change with, uh, with the culture. And as a result, most mainline denominations did liberalize their views on the teachings of the Bible, including its sexual values, and they did so at the altar of intellectual respectability. The problem is that Sponge was absolutely wrong. Churches and denominations that liberalize their theology have not only not grown, but they're dying at a rapid rate. Earlier this year, the Washington Post ran an article entitled... If it doesn't stem its decline, mainline Protestantism has just 23 Easter's left. How'd they arrive at 23? Well, the article traced the rate of decline in mainline Protestant churches and found that over a million members a year are leaving, and at that rate, there will be no more mainline Protestant churches in 2040. But what's interesting is that to the contrary... Conservative churches that continue to hold to a literal interpretation of the Bible are growing. They're growing. And so those of you who are future leaders in America of the, of the church, do not give in to the, to the temptation to compromise sexual orthodoxy because as soon as you give in to that temptation then you have to begin to pick other things out that are objectionable. And then when that happens, you begin one day, you will, without question, 
have to eliminate the gospel as well. And then when that happens, the gospel in America is in mortal danger. That's what Satan is after. Okay, second. Here's the second thing. This is something to do. Teach the goodness. Those of you who are going to be future leaders in the church in America, teach the goodness of sexuality. You know, I know some of you have wondered, why must we do such a long series on sex? And you know what the reason is? You know why we've had to do this? The reason is that you have never been in a church that did. Likely. It is very difficult to live consistent with the Bible's view of sexuality in such an eroticized culture. And the church shouldn't make it more difficult by being silent. Silence conveys that we've got nothing to say about sexuality and that it really isn't important. How could we do that? God created it. Our God created it. We own sex. The church can't afford to be silent about sexuality anymore. We must teach the goodness of sexuality as God created, or we leave generations of our children at the mercy of our culture. Third, yeah, the church should affirm the goodness of sexuality, but parents must be the primary sex educators. And let me tell you something, if you don't, If you aren't, the culture will be. And parents, I I get that you want to keep your child sheltered. I really do get that. But I'm going to tell you something. You cannot afford to do that. Because you're you're the only one that's sheltering them. No one else is sheltering them in a culture, in our culture. A woman in uh, in our City Life group was telling us the other day about the absolutely unbelievably filthy things that were written on the walls of a bathroom stall in her kid's elementary school. Things she didn't even know about till she was much later in life. In their elementary school. You need to start early, parents, and talk often. You know, with my own children, we used anatomically correct language from the time that they were old enough to understand. We talked to them frequently about who should and who shouldn't. When they were young, we talked to them frequently about who should and who shouldn't be allowed to touch their genitals. We told them frequently that if someone said, uh, it's okay if I touch them, but don't go tell your mom and dad because you'll get in trouble, we reinforced over and over and over with them, you won't get in trouble. Anyone else who touches your genitals, any child, any kid, any adult, any teacher, any Sunday school teacher, any coach, they're the ones who are wrong and will be in trouble, not you. And then as each of my sons approached junior high, I, I, I would sit down and read a, we, we would sit down and read a book together. The book was called Every Young Man's Battle by Stephen Arterburn. And we would you know, take each of the boys and once a week, we would read a chapter. So we'd read a chapter a week of this book. And we called it, it was called Doing Book. That's what we called it in our house. And it was, a, you know, each one of the boys, it was, you know, like when the oldest one, uh, when I took the oldest one away and we would sit and read this book, oh, the other ones were like, what's going on? Why don't we get to be a part of that? And so when they got to be older, this was like a big privilege for them. We're going to go into the office. We're going to talk about something. We don't know what it is. Call it Doing Book. And This would surface all kinds of questions and issues, and it gave me the opportunity to teach my kids about the goodness of sex, and at the same time, the limitations that God has put on it. 
And as they got older, if they had questions about sex, or if they had struggles with anything related to sex, they would, they would tell me. They, they, they would tell me, they, they, they would say, Dad, uh, I need to talk to you privately. <laughs> and we would, we'd, we'd go, I'd say, step into my office, and we would, we'd talk it through. And sometimes, I'm going to tell you, they asked questions that were, that were awkward and, and hard to answer and, uh, you know, but it was worth it. Dads and moms, you must start talking to your kids about sex. Your parents likely didn't do that, but you can't repeat that mistake, not in this culture. You have to start talking to them about sex soon and often. Here's another one. You must fight pornography. I want you to listen to this. A Barna group survey found that among adults 18 to 24 years of age, listen to this, 96% of those surveyed said that they do not think pornography is negative. And 9 out of 10 teenagers agree. I want you to listen to me now, those of you who are younger. Neuroscientists have discovered that porn floods the brain's pleasure centers with dopamine when watched. But to get the same hit of dopamine, more and more extreme versions of pornography are needed as time goes by. A study in the Behavioral Sciences Journal in 2016 found that online porn mirrors drug-like addiction qualities leading, quote, to lowered sexual enjoyment. Listen to this. Young men, diminished libido and increased impotency. But even more than that, it destroys the image of God in the people who perform in pornography. And it trains men and women and kids to see other people not as human beings, but only as objects for their own sexual pleasure. And so whatever it takes, fight it. Like parents, I, I know your child would never look at porn. He's special. He's too young. He's too sweet. He wouldn't do that. Start talking to them early and often about it anyway. The average age of a child's first exposure to pornography is between 11 and 13 years of age. You better get to them about sex and pornography before then. Moms and dads, I'm going to say something now that's more extreme than anything else I've said in this series. And you're like thinking, well, what in the world could that be? Moms and dads, I would also think long and hard about giving your child a smartphone. I'm not saying don't give them a phone. I'm just saying a smartphone. Because let me tell you, for boys especially, and increasingly for girls, you are just giving them pornography. It's just so easy to get it. Now, I know if you don't give them a smartphone, your kids are going to think you're mean and, and, and they're going to get made fun of by other kids. Big deal. That's life. They'll get over it. Better that than to grow up addicted to extreme pornography and, una- and unable to engage in sex with their spouse. Parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles, if you have internet access in your home, 
For the sake of your children, make sure that you can restrict use and monitor it. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I, I never, in all 30 years I've been in ministry, I've never endorsed a product. Uh, never suggested a product, never, never endorsed a company, anything like that, okay? But I think for the sake of this series and for the sake of your children, I am going to mention a product here that I have found to be extremely helpful in our family. Um, and there may be many other products that are better, but this is the one that I have found. It is, it's Disney's Circle. It's called Circle. And I think we're going to put a picture of it up on the screen in just a moment. Is it up? There we go. Okay. You can go uh, on the internet to meetcircle.com. And what this does is that it, it allows you as a parent or grandparent, aunt and uncle, to restrict what kinds of things kids see, when they see it. You could turn off their access to the internet at certain times of the day or night. But it also can monitor what they see. So that's, that's what they see in the house. It can also monitor what they see outside of the house. And I'm going to tell you, young men, men, women, parents, grandparents, everyone, fight pornography. Because it's destroying a generation and perhaps more than one generation, multiple generations. Finally, this. I can imagine that as I'm talking, you, you think to yourself, man, Jeff really does. He really doesn't like those uh, LGBTQ people. Uh, and I want to say nothing could be further from the truth. Don't, let me, let me say this. Let me give you the point and then I'll, make, then I'll say something. Here's the final point. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Those are Jesus' words from the gospel of Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. See, what I was going to say is this. Listen, do not buy the lie that you can't disagree with someone and love them at the same time. That's a ridiculous lie. I do this all the time. I disagree with people all the time and I still love them. You can do that. And so you love your enemies, no matter what they say, no matter how much they say, well, you're a homophobe, you're hateful, you're bigoted. Nope, sorry, that's bad logic that you're using. I'm actually very loving. I just disagree with you on this. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Sitting in a jail cell in 1962, Martin Luther King wrote one of his favorite sermons. And he wrote it on this very verse in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. And this very idea of loving your enemies in the fight for racial equality. And I want you to listen to a portion of what he said in the sermon. He said, to our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will and we shall continue to love you. We cannot, in all good conscience, obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you. 
But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. This is what Jesus did for you. This is what Jesus did for me. And this is what Jesus did for anyone who might persecute us when he died on the cross as the sacrifice for human sin. You realize, right, that there was a day when you were an enemy of God. There was a day when you were alienated from him. But the love of Jesus seen in his suffering for you won your heart and changed you. There was a day when I would have been one of the people at the cross Thrilled that Jesus was being crucified. I sent him to the cross. And yet, at a certain point in time, when I understood what he had done for me, it won my heart and it changed me. And I want to tell you that it can do the same for anyone who persecutes you when they see you suffer with love for them. Now look, none of us knows what the future holds. I pray to God I'm wrong about all of this. About the fact that persecution may come to the local church in America because of our views on sexuality. But I would just say this with Peter. Be prepared for persecution. And if it comes, don't act as if it's something strange. It's been going on from the time that Jesus Christ walked the earth, that his followers have been persecuted for their faith in him. Would you bow with me for prayer? Lord Jesus, these are sobering words, and they are hard to hear. And Lord, in... The minds of some people, it might even seem extreme. And Lord, I, I pray indeed that it is. I pray that it would be extreme. I pray that this, this would never happen to the church in America. But Lord, I also pray that should it come, that we are prepared for it. Or to pray that we would never compromise on sexual orthodoxy. Because when we do, the gospel, the gospel is the next thing to go. It just logically has to be. Lord, prepare us, strengthen us, give us courage to stand for the truth of, the literal truth of the Bible and and also for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in the moment of suffering. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.